this episode, we are joined by Melissa Wild, a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Melissa joins us to discuss her use of comparative historical methods in researching and writing her new book, Birth of the Culture Wars. In the discussion, Melissa helps us understand how the approach can unsettle many of our preconceived notions of modern culture, including religious divides around race, gender, and fertility. She also reflects on questions of generalizability and the author's responsibility for how and who uses the published research. Hi, Melissa. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're here today to talk about comparative historical research. If you were to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you go about describing it? When I teach my methods class about comparative historical methods, I tell them that, in my mind, comparative historical methods are no different from any other sociological research that uses mixed methods. Comparative historical researchers use both qualitative and quantitative research. The main difference between it and other methods is that we study dead people. So we can't ask them to clarify things and we can't observe interaction as it unfolds. Those are clearly disadvantages, but I also like to emphasize that those disadvantages are well compensated for by what I see as comparative historical research's greatest advantage, that we can ask big questions, like why do revolutions happen? Why do some countries have stronger welfare states than others? Or in my case, why do the politics of sex and gender divide American religion? So when I talk about this method in my own research methods class, I often get a lot of students uh, asking, how is this different from what we would learn if we were taking a methods class over in the history department instead? And I don't, I don't usually have a great answer for that. So I'm wondering if you could help me out for selfish reasons. How would you answer those students? I actually spend a lot of time on that in my methods class because I think it is something that is confusing and really unclear for students initially. And I think that there are really two key differences. The first is that historians tend to stop with what is in the archive. And that's a legitimate disciplinary decision when it comes to historical research. Sociologists have to think through the biases of what is and is not in a particular archive. And we have to triangulate that data with other sources, just as we would with other research methods. So we either have to use other archives that, for example, if we're looking at an archive that we know is biased towards a progressive viewpoint on a particular issue, we have to also find the conservative archive or um, other places. So outside of archives, we need to be think creatively about where we might find data that maybe people didn't think was important enough to put in an archive uh, that might be in someone's basement or that um, just hasn't been archived yet, or uh, in my case, actually ends up being published. And so it's publicly accessible, but hasn't been used in a systematic way. So that's the first thing, is that we don't limit ourselves strictly to archival sources. Not that all historians do, but in general, I find that that is a big difference, that we have to think through the biases in our sources. And then the second thing, which is really connected to those biases, is that it's really Part and parcel of our research is that we have to falsify alternative explanations. And the only way that you can falsify alternative explanations is by making sure that the data you have is systematic. And that's something that I think we do much more explicitly. So we say it's not the case that it was this part, this explanation, because this data shows this, right? And historians tend to not make those kinds of arguments. So as we try to make sense of this approach, we're going to use your research that you've conducted for your new book, Birth of the Culture Wars. What were your central research questions or what was the guiding topic when you when you started that project? My book is titled Birth of the Culture Wars, How Race and Class Divided American Religion, Examining a Century of Debates Over Contraception. The book is really just in finishing stages, but it's really 
it was really a result of me taking C. Wright Mills' classic advice that sociologists should examine the taken for granted and think about its causes and consequences. Um, the taken for grantedness that puzzled me was why it is just accepted that conservative religious groups are conservative about sex and gender, things like contraception, abortion, homosexuality, porn, etc. And progressive groups are progressive. In fact, it is almost strictly these issues, along with diverging views about race and immigration today, that still defines what it means to be progressive or conservative group or individual in America. So I began to wonder, how did we get here? Why is it the politics of sex and gender that divide American religion? And that really became the question that motivated the entire project. What was your specific methodological design to get at that, those big questions? In some ways, it was really simple. And in other ways, it was kind of complicated. As a comparative historical sociologist, I knew that I needed two things to make this project successful. The first was that I needed a systematic sample that would let me examine the American religious field as a whole. And I had to determine if there was a moment when religious groups began diverging on sex and gender. As I began to brainstorm about potential issues to study to find that moment, it became clear to me that the truth is American religious groups have not always been divided by sex. A hundred years ago, they all agreed. Sex was not discussed in polite company. Contraception was forbidden. Even issues such as women's suffrage were not divisive. But that changed rather suddenly around 1930, when nine of the <clears throat> U.S.'s most prominent religious groups rather suddenly liberalized on the issue of birth control. So I had my issue, and then I ended up uh, working on developing the, a systematic sample, which turned out to include 31 of America's largest and most prominent religious groups. For the most part, it then became an issue of figuring out how to study those 31 groups systematically. Do you mind sharing some of the core findings or contributions? Just a few so we can keep that in mind while we continue to work through everything else. It's nice to have the, those ideas in our head as we, as we talk more about the techniques you actually use to get there. Sure. The key finding that I came up with after conducting what turned out to be about a century of research on these 31 American religious groups was that the reason why some groups liberalized earlier than others on the issue of contraception, and ultimately the reason why they formed identities as sexual and religious progressives, was connected to their racial and class position within the United States. In a nutshell, what I found was that racialized concerns about fertility determined the sides of the debate nearly 100 years ago and continued to do so well into the second half of the 20th century. Eventually, debates about contraception no longer hinged openly on concerns about other people's fertility, but by this time, groups' identities as sexual progressives or conservatives had, had crystallized, and most, especially progressives, had forgotten the reasons behind their initial stances, much less how those reasons ultimately shaped their take on issues of sex and gender today. I'm always really interested in how researchers go about finding their topic, especially uh, when, it, when it's a new project. So when you were designing this study, did the topic come first and then you turn to the methodological approach that you had some expertise in? Or did you know that as you identified, I'm a, you said you're a, comp a comparative historical researcher, so you looked for something that would fit that approach? Um, I guess it's kind of a chicken and egg type question. Uh, yeah. but, but I'm always curious how people go about answering that. The truth is that the question, which is how did we get here? Why is it the politics of sex and gender that differentiate American religion and not something else? That question came first. But it it was so, you know, I think maybe I thought about 
looking at that with survey data, and I have done a lot of research using secondary data, like the, like the general social survey, which I think is amazing. But I think I quickly, I knew kind of immediately that looking at that question via survey data was not going to get me, the, I wasn't going to get, be able to answer that, right? It was a, it was a question that entailed understanding process. And so that meant that I was going to be doing by nature comparative historical research. How did that methodological choice fit with your theoretical framing of the question? And it seems like you're already getting at with this interest in process, but is there anything else you can add to that? I have struggled over the years with what is theory versus what is method. And so I have come down on the side of theory is nothing more than a generalizable explanation, right? And so in terms of the theoretical framing for my talk, you know, I think in some ways the empirical question and the theoretical question are the same. What explains why the politics of sex and gender differentiate American religion? So that's generalizable. I think far beyond the 31 groups that I actually have in my sample. And so in that sense, it's a theoretical question. But I think it, it's possibly also generalizable with a lot of caveats and a lot of careful claims beyond the American religious field as well, right? Because religion doesn't exist in a vacuum. And what I'm studying really is religious groups reacting to cultural change. So I do think it's um, a theoretical question about why is it that these issues also differentiate progressive and conservative Americans today, right? So I do think that that theoretical question is really similar to the empirical question. It's just a matter of kind of how far we're extrapolating. Let's get into, let's get into some of the uh, more technical aspects of the research. You've already talked a little bit about the data that you were using to try to answer these questions, but how did you choose that data? And was access ever an issue? Because I know that's a big question in all in every method that we use, but especially when you're looking at historical uh, an historical approach. I started out by going to the archives, but I found that they were surprisingly not helpful in answering the bulk of my more specific questions, um, because of the biases that I talked about in relationship to archives. So for example, I looked at the American Eugenics Society archive and it was really fascinating and really useful in relationship to understanding the ways in which the American Eugenics Society tried to mobilize certain religious groups on its behalf. But it told me absolutely nothing about the rest of the groups in my sample who weren't active in the American Eugenics Society. I turned to religious periodicals so that I could figure out what was going on with the groups that were disconnected from the eugenics movement. And then I quickly realized that actually I just needed to be systematic completely. And I needed to do the same kind of keyword searching on the periodicals that I did for the groups that weren't connected to the American Eugenics Society as I did with the ones who were. So I turned to religious periodicals pretty early on in the research and ultimately ended up relying almost strictly on them. And um, you know, the official yearbooks for the denominations in terms of their official statements, um, almost exclusively, really, when it comes to my analytical and empirical. Were the religious periodicals already digitized or was that something that you had to do as well? Right. Oh, my God, don't I wish. So I started out doing research just to kind of briefly explain the years that I ended up uh, examining. So the first years that I, so I did do research on these groups' views on abolition. So the, the research actually begins around the Civil War, but there was just a complete and total dearth of primary sources available on abolition for most of the groups in my sample. So I really don't consider the primary research that I did to start until 
1918, which was the first year that I started doing the keyword searches on all of the group's periodicals. And I chose 1918 because that gave me a good view of women, women's suffrage, as well as the issue of prohibition. Then I sampled on 1924-25 because I also was able to get groups' views on immigration restriction, which was happening at that time, as well as the Scopes trial, which was the evolution debate. Then I also did the keyword searches from 1929 to 1931 because that was the uh, peak of the years of discussion about birth control and eugenics so that I could really get a sense of what the groups felt about those issues. And that was what I considered the first wave of research. Then I did this, I did a similar kind of research for wave two, but wave two stretched from 1935 to 1965. And because I was covering a longer span of time and because I really at that point was trying to just chase the pro trace the process, I ended up looking at 1935, 1945, 1955, and 1965 for all of the periodicals. And then in the end, as I was finishing the research, all of these religious groups ended up saying a lot about contraception in more recent years because of all of the Supreme Court cases that suddenly came up as I was finishing the research. So I also ended up looking at all of the religious groups periodicals for 1914 through 1917 for what they said on Hobby Lobby and the Little Sisters of the Poor cases. So the periodicals that were accessible to me definitely changed over the course of those 100 years. Unfortunately, so did the denominations. <laughs> so one of the difficulties, you know, that I started out with immediately dealing with was that the den denominations went through a series of mergers over time. And, and, they, and then they also tended to change their names. And then with those mergers and with those name changes, the periodicals changed. Sometimes periodicals just, just folded. Um, sometimes one periodical was the dominant periodical in one time period. And then it, and then it was overtaken by another periodical in another time period. So kind of making sure that I was really researching the representative periodical and that my research assistants ended up making, you know, finding the right periodical and using the right periodical and attaching it to the right group was definitely something that was a little bit challenging, but beyond just making sure that I was looking at the right things, I was really surprised to find that it's actually not easy to find out what a denomination periodical was in a particular year. So there, you can't just Google, for example, what was the periodical for the Presbyterian Church in the United States in 1925? Like, you won't get anything. And I think that's a result of the fact that, first of all, no one has asked that question besides really strange people like me. But secondly, it's a result of the fact that these periodicals were an insider publication. It was It's kind of a result of assumed knowledge. So everybody who was in the group knew what their periodical was and nobody outside of the group really cared. And so that was one of the challenges was actually finding the periodicals. And that required a lot of kind of very sophisticated searches via WorldCat and a lot of help with librarians. And then sometimes I ended up having to um, email and contact archi archivists at various particular denominational archives who would then confirm for me, oh yes, this was the periodical from this time because they could go to their shelves. And they could look at it, right? And sometimes I needed to do that. That, um, that seems potentially overwhelming. <laughs> so could you talk about how do you decide when you have enough and when and when you actually need more? Because it seems like you were following a number of different trails at once and into different uh, different denominations. When do you say, this is good, I'm, I'm ready to just analyze it and write? I was really, really wedded to having systematic data 
that would allow me to talk about the American religious field as a whole. I really did not want to end up being able to talk about only the most prominent groups or only the groups that had the best records, which tended to be the same thing. Um, and I'm, I guess, you know, I'm pretty OCD about the quality of data that I have. So I really was not satisfied um, until I had done the keyword searches for every year, for every group that was possible. So there were, there was one denomination that fell out of my sample because there were literally no copies of its periodical accessible anywhere in the country. Um, but other than that, I really did just insist that no matter, you know, I had to send research assistants to use the New York public library, which has a great collection. I hired research assistants in um, Berkeley, California, actually, because the Graduate Theological Union has a great collection there, because a lot of these periodicals, especially the older ones, were non-circulating. But in terms of deciding when I was done, I wasn't done until I had the data on every group for every year possible. Sometimes I couldn't get a particular year, so I went to the, the, the closest year that was available. And I used I used the interlibrary loan service at my university beyond uh, you know what is normal for anyone, I'm sure. But in the end, um, I think when I had to decide that I was done, I was tempted to continue to do the research on 75, 85, 95, 2005, 2015, et cetera. And I decided that by 65, it was clear to me that these groups had begun to really develop identities as religious progressives and religious conservatives. And that, and that was the key for me, right? Because I was able to see really what is essentially my dependent variable emerge, and so I could stop and I think it's totally legitimate to say I don't exactly have the mechanisms for how these progressive and conservative religious identities ended up evolving over the next 50 years. But the fact is they had emerged by the time the sexual revolution started. And so that's why, how I ended up stopping the research at that point, deciding the book is going to end in 65. It, but then, you know, also have kind of a coda about why are we still talking about contraception today? You've mentioned your research assistants in a, a, a few different occasions during their a conversation, and it seems like you had a number of research assistants, but also spread across geographic locations. So could you tell us a bit about how you managed to strategically make use of, of the time of the people assisting you on the project? So I'm working on the acknowledgments for the book right now, and I'm trying to piece together lists of the different research assistants I had over the course of the research. And Initially, I estimated that I employed at least about 30 research assistants. And by going through payroll records and independent study records and grant reports, et cetera, I've been able to put together a list that actually has more than 50 research assistants on it, which I was quite surprised about. And the truth is that managing that many people really was a huge task, and it did take up the bulk of my time for many years. But the way that I use them efficiently was by really developing a system to kind of get them into the project. And then I also was really careful to, once I found good research assistants who liked comparative historical research or who I should say and didn't mind reading periodicals that were 100 years old, I kept them for as long as I could. So there were many under, they were almost all undergraduate research assistants with a couple of graduate students who helped me manage things. There were some that I kept for, all four years of their undergraduate career at the University of Pennsylvania. But I think the most, I think the, the, the best takeaway from this project that I've learned is one of the things I did was I created basically a manual 
and it was titled what to do with a denominational periodical. And it just took them step by step through the questions they needed to answer about the periodical. So, you know, who published it? How often was it published? How many pages were there? How many articles, et cetera, that they had to do every year, right? Because I needed to know if the periodical changed as well as, you know, how to do the keyword searches. And then I would usually get a a research assistant started and ask them to do one month of research. So uh, 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 as in read one month of the periodical, they would report a memo to me where they started to find articles and they would very roughly code them according to the keywords that they, they ended up hitting in those articles. And then I, I would look over that memo and I would say, okay, you're not really understanding that what I mean by this code or this looks good, but I want you to cross list this with these three codes and so usually I found that it was really just that one important as they got started, once they got into it, stopping them after just one month of the periodical. And then they could usually finish that year in, in, uh, in a pretty decent amount of time. I found out that each periodical, each year of a periodical took at least 40 hours for each of the research assistants. But um, I told them it should take no more than 60 so that if they were taking more than 60 hours to get through one year of the periodical, they needed to kind of move things more, move things along more quickly. They needed to start learning how to skim. So that was part of the process, too, was learning, was teaching them how to, you know, I didn't want them to read every word. They did not have to read the recipes in the recipe section, right? So, and then I guess the last thing is that from the beginning, I instructed my assistants to look for issues that seemed to be important to whatever particular denomination they were studying. And that was useful for me because some things really emerged from that that I didn't expect. And it ended up leaving me with uh, both inductive and deductive findings, right? Some of the keywords I knew from the beginning I wanted them to search on others, they ended up telling me about and I ended up adding them to the keyword search list. Considering all the research assistants and all the years and all the periodicals, that's a massive amount of data. So what does it actually look like when you are analyzing it? What do you do when you're confronted with this, with all these codes that are being produced for you? So I ended up with about 10,000 articles that are summarized in various memos that my research assistants put together. And then from those memos, I pulled about one-tenth of those articles and I then ordered them through interlibrary loan and then they sent them to me on PDFs or in PDFs. At the time that I did most of this research, PDFs were not codable in any qualitative software program even though a lot of the qualitative software programs claimed they were in the end, what they allowed you to do is kind of insert some sort of text box and say, Oh, this is this code, but it didn't, that turned out to be more cumbersome than just having the articles transcribed and, um, you know, pulling out the, the useful quotes electronically after they were transcribed. So I ended up doing that. That was also something that had to be done by research assistants for the most part especially for the earlier years. Fortunately, as the research became more contemporary, there are now better programs that allow you to turn PDFs into electronic text. But, you know, there it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And a lot of these periodicals, particularly older ones, have strange font and um, strange formatting. And so the OCR doesn't really recognize a lot of uh, the language. So I still have to rely on... Um, on brains, human brains for a lot of it. And then when it came to the coding and the analysis, 
you know, I really ended up primarily using my brain and I ended up using, but I ended up creating like massive spreadsheets where I had each variable and I would connect the variable, like the big code. And then I would have a footnote where they would, where I would kind of summarize the data that supported, for example, if a group was strong on eugenics, and then the footnote would say, you know, in the following five articles between 1929 and 1931, the group said the said things such as X, you know, and I would kind of both use kind of a quantitative as well as qualitative justification for those codes in those big spreadsheets. With the quantitative justification, was that more basic, descriptive, this is how often it's appearing in these years, or were you trying to do other types of analysis with the codes that were generated? It was mostly descriptive in terms of this is how often they talked about it Okay. for this project. Although I have done, you know, quantitative research for other projects that the only quantitative analysis I did for this project had to do, I created maps of um, the geographic dispersion of each of the denominations in my sample. How did you make the maps? Using the 1926 census of religious bodies and then matching the location of the denomination congregations with census data from 1930. And those are really cool and useful to have, and I have them for all of the groups. But, uh, you know, that was really about me making sure that my sense of the fact that this was a geographically specific phenomenon was accurate. And it, and it really was powerful once I, sh- once I looked at the maps. Do you have any particular practical details or, or tricks of the trade that you could share for people who are interested in embarking on this journey <laughs> that you've taken, whether about the data collection or analysis, because it seems like you had to work through a number of, of challenges. Um, and I'm wondering what you could share with undergrad or a graduate student or even a young faculty member seeking to take this type of approach. Sure. I think I would say now that it's almost done and I've actually answered my research question and I'm convinced that I've done so accurately and I'm excited that the answer, I think, is provocative and different from what people would expect. I'm really happy that I took this on, but it was a really long haul. And I think the biggest challenge for me in terms of the research was the amount of time it took. These days, we are under pressure to publish more and more and more and more quickly for promotions and jobs. And the truth is, this kind of enormous project just takes time. You know, I hired 50 research assistants, but it still took me more years than I'm willing to say on tape. And it takes a lot more time than other methods, especially research that uses secondary data, which I also do and have great respect for. So for me, the biggest challenge was in being patient and trusting that it would be worth all of the work and time in the end. And then I think the other kind of takeaways, nuts and bolts, suggestions that I have as a result of doing this is that uh, if you're going to tackle something that's really big, make sure you have a systematic sample because, you know, you can't fix that at the end. And it's really having that systematic sample that has given me the ability to talk about the American religious field as a whole. And then if you are going to do something like this, you, you really have to learn how to delegate to research assistants. So this probably wouldn't have been something possible as a, as a graduate student, a lot, at least not in this, of this scope. Right. No, I don't think so. I mean, now that I realize that I've hired 50 research assistants, you know, I used I used all of the research money that was available to me as a result of just being on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. I also ended up with a university research foundation grant that was for almost $50,000 that all went into the project. And I have my department that has been supportive and willing to let me hire work study students for, you know, years at their cost. And I just think 
as a graduate student, you don't have those resources, right? Graduate students are lucky to get $5,000 in dissertation improvement grants. So I don't think it, it, that something this size would have been possible as a graduate student. It was possible to me, though, I did start this pre-tenure, but it's definitely something that I think takes a, a lot of resources. Thinking about some of the uh, big picture questions around research, generalizability is this central concept that we always talk about when we're evaluating research or in, when we're in the classroom teaching students about research methods. How did this factor into your project? And I'm, I'm really interested because you were already talking about your, your sample and how you were very focused on having this comprehensive approach and not skipping things even if it was difficult to get access. I talk about this a lot in my research methods class, actually, and I really stress, I think, you know, being trained at UC Berkeley, I deeply believe that qualitative research is no less generalizable than quantitative research. It's just a different kind of generalization. And in some ways, I'm going to make the really bold claim that I think it's much more generalizable theoretically often. And so, but the way that is, is that we have to, this is part and parcel of the articulating alternative hypotheses and falsifying them, right? And so for me, making sure that my research was generalizable was about making sure I had that systematic sample. But by creating such a diverse and thorough sample, I basically was confident that there wouldn't be any religious groups that wouldn't fall into one of the categories that I ended up creating to understand what was happening in the field, right? And so I needed to convince myself of that in order to be able to convincingly argue that to others. And so for me, generalizable is key, but there's a difference between theoretical generalizability and empirical generalizability, right? And so that's what I tell my students in my methods class. When we talk about a representative sample, we talk about generalizing from a representative sample. That means simply that, you know, any person in a particular population has an equal chance of falling into that sample, right? That's, and that's about being able to empirically generalize about the proportions of various things we have in that, whatever that survey is. That's not the same thing as being able to theoretically generalize about the processes that we've identified through qualitative research. And so I'm trying to theoretically generalize about the process that creates religious change. And so while I'm not, while I do think that my research is theoretically generalizable, I don't think that it's necessarily empirically generalizable. I don't think that the same exact things that are said by one religious group are going to be found by another necessarily, but I do think I would be able to art to explain them within the larger theoretical argument that I've developed. That's a great answer. I'm going to steal that in the classroom. <laughs> I'll have to memorize that one. So another often discussed idea, thinking about being in the classroom and these fundamental things we think about as researchers, is the idea of positionality. And usually when we think about this concept, it's classically applied to ethnography or when you're conducting interviews. And it's usually people don't immediately think of being in the archives. So how did this play a part in the research process or design? Or is that something that you just didn't need to even think about? Oh, man. I think that's such a great question. And it's totally different, I think, for comparative historical research than it is for our methods. I can think of a number of different ways that I can answer this question. I think the first is an experience I've had with all historical research over the course of my career. And that is that I'm always surprised by how much I have to learn about how groups talked about things a few years ago, much less a century ago. It's just the categories that we have in our heads the, the words that we have that we use today, the concepts, they don't translate to the past easily. They do eventually, but it, you have to basically immerse yourself in the way that those people talked and the way that those people thought 
and I say talk, but really it's how they wrote for the most part. Most of my data is written in order to understand, in order to answer your questions and you have to learn different language, right? So that's the first part I think of positionality that's different. It's just, you go into historical research from a contemporary vantage point, and then you have to learn what that vantage point would have meant a hundred years ago. So that's the first thing. But then for me, the other thing that's been challenging, there've been two, two other things that are challenging. The first was being in the American eugenic society archive. And I was shocked that reformed Jews were connected to the eugenics movement from a position uh, as a contemporary researcher in the 2000s, I just couldn't understand how I, I was. Sh I just didn't understand it. I thought eugenics was used against Jews in World War II, and it just never occurred to me that there would have ever been any Jews that were associated with it. And it turns out in the United States there were some, and there were two wings of the eugenics movement. One of one of those wings lauded Jews as an example of the most eugenically superior race, because if they weren't eugenically superior, how could they have possibly created Jesus? Right. I, I mean, I had no idea about this. That was just kind of mind blowing. And I, and it took me a lot, a long time to figure that out, but that was just because of my own sense, my, my own kind of historical ignorance, I guess. I would imagine that would take uh, emotional labor on your part to have to delve into these objectionable ideas of, of these groups. Uh, this is something we often think about with ethnographers, um, but it seems pertinent in your project as well. For sure. And then the other thing that I've had to struggle with and that I think I'm really going to end up struggling with as the book comes out is that this is the story that I'm telling in the book. Today's religious progressives started out on the path of becoming America's religious sexual progressives because they were racist. That story is one that conservatives absolutely love, Right. And so that as a progressive, that's been a struggle for me to be honest about the findings that I have. But I think what I've learned, because I'm really interested in this question from a, an objective social scientific, you know, sociological perspective, the thing that I can respond to when conservatives have contacted me and, and have said things and have invited me to talk about my, my findings on their blogs and stuff like that. And so what I and I expect that will happen more and more. And my response is just, absolutely, this is the story. And the thing is, conservatives never forgot. Conservatives always knew that there was a connection between contraceptive activism and the and eugenics movement. But progressives really conveniently did forget. But so what I remind the conservatives of is that, listen, there were plenty of eugenicist groups who are conservative today, but they didn't have the constellation of factors that the progressives group, the progressive groups who liberalized it. So they didn't believe in the social gospel movement, which is something I haven't talked about at all in relationship to this, but it was key for the early part as well. Being a, identified as a progressive Protestant who that thought that they, they had a responsibility to improve society. And then even in addition to that, Southern eugenicists had a, just a completely different understanding of what was racially problematic. And so whereas in the Northeast, uh, eugenicists were really concerned about the fertility of, Ita of Italian and Irish immigrants and Jews in the South. They literally said things like, listen, all those people are white. They're totally fine. What we're concerned about is differential birth rates between whites and blacks. And listen, whites in the South are still having lots of babies. We're good. And we've got Jim Crow. So it was just for me, it's about making sure to tell that objective social scientific story, which actually I think is objective, just not pretty. Did you have these potential groups in mind when you were 
starting this research project. I know some people seek to write in a more accessible manner, hoping to reach a larger audience, while other people focus on writing to a more specialized group of readers and to publish in journals. But it seems like with this project, it has real contemporary political relevance. Uh, so you might reach a different type of audience. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I do believe in public sociology. I really am tired of only speaking to the academy. I think that we as sociologists, what we do is incredibly important and useful and that the weakness we have in our discipline is that we don't do a good job of giving our best research to the rest of the world, right? And so I, and I've been working really hard to learn how to do that better. And I've learned it's important to write American Journal of Sociology articles and it's important to write American Sociological Review articles, but those don't get to the general public. Books do. And so I definitely have always had but I do find those articles are really useful in terms of the review process. And so I, I you know, I continue to, to work on, on articles as well. But in terms of the book, I have always had, you know, this is going to sound really silly, but I've really always had Terry Gross in my head. What is she going to ask me about my book? And so that has kind of helped me to try to write prose that's really accessible and then to put a lot of the methodological details in appendices because, you know, sociologists absolutely expect that methodological information to be in the book. And if it's not there, it's going to be a problem. But no one outside of sociology wants to read details on my coding, my sampling, right? Or my, or my coding scheme. And so that's kind of the tension that I've had to, uh, to deal with. And I think actually methodological appendices are so useful. You can put any detail in there. And for the most problematic reviewer, as long as you put it in there, you're good. That must be a challenge because I agree with you that the details themselves could potentially bog down the book, but this, the scope of your research and how thorough you were is also really impressive. And it seems like if that were presented in the right way, that would excite the larger audience or Terry Gross. Um, <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a question of how much, how much do you give that person without getting caught up in the details? You know, I hope so. I hope you're right. I mean, that's where I think all of us who do this for a living can kind of lose perspective. I really don't know. For me, it's about being able to speak with authority and know that my claims are really not questionable because, you know, what I'm saying is really controversial and provocative and I want to make sure that I'm super careful and I'm a careful researcher anyway. But for me, it's about being able to say things with authority, like I said. And so, and I think that that's more convincing, but I think, you know, yes, the general public certainly will appreciate the fact that this is not a story about one religious denomination changing over the course of a hundred years, right? This is a story about American religion writ large. So my sample includes 90% of Americans who professed a religious membership in 1926. I think being able to say that will hopefully convince even the greatest skeptics. And certainly there are going to be people who are members of religious groups that are not in my sample who are going to say, you know, this doesn't apply to us. And if they challenge me, I, I might be crazy enough to actually like go and do the research on that group and show, say, and show them that I'm, <laughs> but I, I hope I, you know, I probably won't hopefully. <laughs> I always like to end the podcast with two questions, one about the strength and one about the limitations of an approach. Um, so let's, let's start with the limitations. What do you see as the limitations to comparative historical research? I think the limitations in terms of this particular kind of research that I did, number one, like I said already, is the amount of time it takes. And that's, and to be really, really thorough. 
I think the other limitation is general to all comparative historical research, and that is that I can't get access to what people were thinking, right? I can't get access to what they did, as you can with participant observation, and compare it to what they said. All I have, especially as I go back further in history, is what they wrote. And this has enormous limitations. But for my purposes, which is to trace what explains why a group would officially change their religious doctrine, what they wrote and actually what they published proved to be incredibly illustrative and even shocking. And so I do think sometimes we overemphasize those more interactive approaches because when the reality is that what people write has as much interaction embedded in it, right? Because there's revision and there's, and certainly there's editing, which can leave out some things. But when people are defending a particular position, it can be more useful to see what they wrote than it is to actually just interview them about it because it because they have to refine what they say. So I guess I'm moving from limitations to a defense of the research already. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're you're revealing your positionality in that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. All right. Well, since you're already starting to head that direction, let's let's end on a positive note. So imagining you're back in front of the undergraduate classroom who I brought up in the beginning. I'd never heard of this approach before. What would you say your big selling point or the big, the main advantage of this type of methodological approach is? That's easy for me um, because I definitely do that in front of my class. And I think I really do believe that perhaps better than any other method, comparative historical research allows us to ignite our sociological imaginations. And that's for a very practical reason. That is that history gives us outcomes we can explain. And it does so in ways that does that do not require us creating kind of artificial outcomes, right? The way with survey data where we say these people, you know, this person uh, answered this survey question this way versus this way. And this is correlated with their vote, right? Like in this case, I have groups that officially changed their doctrine. And then I have groups that didn't change their doctrine, but said, you know, nice things about those changes. Or I have groups that said those people are crazy and they are talking to the devil. Right. I have these outcomes that are very, very different, that are easy to code that I think I think it's an advantage because for me, when you have clear outcomes, everything else is easier. Well, thank you again for joining us and thank you for giving us a great inspirational answer to end with. Thank you, Kyle. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give methods a chance. Thank you.